unawares, and so they're wreaking havoc, they're causing issues, they're causing problems, and they can be in the pulpit, they can be in the pew, they can be in any place per se, and yet they're wreaking havoc in the church. And so Jude is calling our attention to that by saying that one of the ways we contend for the faith is identifying and uh, steering clear and so forth, even as we'll see tonight. And so tonight, a little bit different of an outline, we still have one, but uh, it's just very simplified. Brother Cliff will have some extras. If you need an outline, we certainly, certainly would love for you to follow along. It kind of helps to uh, see where we're going, what we're doing, and keep us on track. So if you need the outline, Brother Cliff will make his way to the back there. And uh, now we get to one of the more interesting parts of Jude. And just a couple verses, and boy, it really brings up a lot of questions when we get into these two verses and uh, the verses of following. So if you will, look with me at verse 14, and we're just going to read the, the, the first few words, kind of uh, see where we're at. And it says this in verse 14. And Enoch also, uh, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. Okay, let's stop there. The these are everything we described last week. You remember, you look at at the verses above. These are spots in your feast of charity. Uh, These are those that feed themselves without fear. They are clouds without water. And and, uh, they are trees whose fruit withereth. And we talked about that last week. We described that. I don't know about you, but Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, maybe even Saturday last week, our sky was full of clouds without water amen and every time i looked up like it's gonna rain and it didn't rain i thought man boy that's jude coming to life isn't it as it was even last wednesday night and so we saw that that's who he's speaking of now he says okay who's speaking about this well let's refamiliarize ourselves with the one that he quotes enoch now immediately you as a bible scholar you said wait a second i've never read much that enoch wrote in fact i don't think i wrote anything i read anything that enoch wrote I don't remember a book, you know, uh, as we get older, we might forget all the books of the Old Testament and things like that. But nonetheless, just saying, hey, I don't remember reading any of that. And he's quoting Enoch. Well, that brings up a great question, doesn't it? And that's why it makes these verses quite interesting as we look at and study. Okay, so most of those say, yeah, I remember who Enoch is. And he identifies him as the seventh generation from Adam. So at creation, counting Adam, the seventh generation and I don't, you know, sometimes we lament in our Bible reading when we get to those points where they have the genealogy, all those names we can't pronounce and things like that. But can I tell you, man, that genealogy is neat. And I'm excited that the Lord puts it in there because he helps us see these kinds of things and helps us to see the connection. It's interesting, Enoch, we're going to turn here in just a moment. You'll see Genesis chapter 5 and verse uh, verses 19 and following. We'll look there in just a minute. But um, in Genesis chapter 5, we'll have this uh, lineage or a genealogy we'll look at, but it's also recorded for us in Luke chapter 3 in which we see the lineage of Christ and so forth, and Enoch is mentioned there too. But for the time being, hold your spot in Jude. Let's turn to Genesis, if you will. Genesis chapter number 5. We'll turn all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, from close to the end of it. Genesis chapter number 5. Again, we want to remind ourselves who Enoch was and uh, who uh, it is that Jude is quoting. Notice it, Genesis uh, Genesis chapter number 5, we look in verse number 19, okay? We start out with a guy, I I appreciate these names being intermixed. Jared, that's easy to say, right? Verse number 19, and Jared lived lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. 
And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. We're familiar with Methuselah, a man who lived the longest, 969 years. We'll see that in a minute, a minute here. Uh, verse 22, and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Okay? And he says this, verse 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. And then it goes on. It just begins from his uh, genealogy, leading from there and so forth. So first observation, we certainly remind ourselves, okay, who is the author of this prophecy? He said Enoch prophesied. So it's Enoch. Remember, Enoch is the one in Genesis chapter 5 described as he walked with God. We would uh, obviously deduce from that he was godly. Uh, certainly, it's not surprising that some of his statements or prophecy would have been uh, preserved. Now, here's uh, certainly this is somewhat conjecture, okay? But how in the world did we get something that Enoch quoted? Well, since he was probably, or not was probably, but he was godly, it is probable that Noah, his great-grandson, took with him some of the sayings, some of the prophecies that Enoch, uh, that God had given Enoch before. And uh, whether that be by written, uh, you know, it's possible in some written form that Noah had a bookshelf in the ark. Who knows, right? And had some written things down, but more than likely, more than likely, it was just by oral tradition. Uh, if you study history, you know that much of what we have historically began before much of it was written as oral tradition, passed on from generation to generation, orally remembered and, and, and passed on for subsequent uh, uh, generations to enjoy. And so it was passed on orally, and that's likely what transpired here and, uh, with Enoch. And uh, there is no inspired book of Enoch that has ever been recognized in the canon of scriptures. And so you're not going to search and find Jude quoting something that's part of the canon of scriptures and you say well why in the world is he quoting him why is Jude picking Enoch out of nowhere just to quote him and and oh no he's quoting a source that isn't inspired shouldn't we only quote the bible well can I remind you Paul even quoted the Greek poets so that doesn't make everything they wrote inspired and think about it this way too of the prophets that we have in the Old Testament, we can only venture a guess of what percentage of all their prophecies are recorded in scriptures. So even Isaiah and Elijah and all these others, uh, Jeremiah, we don't know all of their prophecies. Some were recorded, inspired in that sense as the scriptures, but we don't have all of their prophecies. In addition, do you know how many times we read about in Israel that prophet, that prophet, and we have no prophecies whatsoever recorded for us in the scripture? of that prophet and yet they were prophets of god we read that and certainly then expand that a little larger and you have the history of mankind not just israel you're going to run into a lot of prophets of god that have nothing recorded in the scripture and so certainly it would lean towards here is a uh, something that enoch said in the antediluvian age the the pre-flood age that has been passed down and uh, later on the jews uh, put together a a grouping of some stories some prophecies some statements that they have ascribed to enoch and uh, it's certainly not inspired and uh, such but nonetheless we have this in the book of jude and so what does that tell us here 
Well, let's back up a second. Let's look at it this way. So Enoch, he walked with God. And that's in the, the Old Testament where we find him in this genealogy. Let's go back to the New Testament. Turn with me to Hebrews, if you will. Hebrews chapter number 11, the hall of faith as we like to call it. And uh, uh, let's see what is recorded about Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11, if you will. Turn with me there, Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 5. He walked with God and he was not, is what was recorded for us in Genesis. We come to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, and here's what's recorded for us here. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Man, what a testimony. I love that. I just said, Enoch, please God. So when Jude quotes Enoch, you're like, man, this guy walked with God. This is a man who spent time with God, and so much so that he pleased God. And as he pleased God, God translated him. I like that statement, and he was found not. Okay? What do we call Enoch? The grand winner of hide and seek. He was found, okay, forget it. He was found not, right? Uh, people probably went and looked for him and said, where did Enoch go? Where, what happened? Uh, you know, where, he's translated. God took him right out. Why? He walked with God. And what does this passage say? What was his testimony before he was translated? He walked with God and he pleased God. Oh, that you and I would please God like that. That we would see it and understand, man, I want to be like, so when we hear this quote of Enoch, this is coming from a guy who walked with God. Who might we say, like David, a man after the heart of God, a man who knew the heart and mind of God. And so when we hear a quote by him, boy, I want to sit up and I want to listen to that. And so it is that he was uh, quoted by Jude. We, We see who he is and he gives this prophecy as Jude calls it. And, and let me just point this out. Okay, so wherever that prophecy came from, it, uh, if he wrote it as part of a book, let's say there is such a, uh, that what is called the book of Enoch today is literally written by Enoch. Okay, even if that wasn't inspired, do you realize that when Jude put this quote in the Bible, led by the Holy Spirit, it was part of Jude's inspired letter, letter and epistle. So the truth that comes through that Enoch speaks about, and it's a powerful truth. And so we'll read the next couple verses here in just a moment. It is a powerful truth that Enoch prophesies about. And when I tell you, that truth is certainly inspired. Because it's part of the inspired Bible that you and I have before us here. What is the subject of the prophecy by Enoch? Well, let's look. Jude, back at Jude, let's finish verse 14. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these sayings. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly, verse 15, among them, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, against God. So what is the subject of the prophecy? And uh, Enoch, don't miss it. It's something that most people don't want to hear about today. What is he referring to? and Why does Jude quote him here? Well, simply this. It's the judgment of God upon the ungodly. The judgment of God. That God is going to judge sin and wickedness and transgressions. That God is going to mete out judgment. I tell you today, mankind today just doesn't want to hear about hell. The world doesn't want to hear about a place of everlasting torment. 
So much so that we try to force it out of our theology. We try to play it down in the Bible. It doesn't, people today don't want to hear about current judgment of sin. People don't want to hear that they're reaping what they sow. They, they don't want to hear that their actions are going to be tried. Even now that God is going to bring judgment and punishment even in this time. Yay, especially at the end. People don't want to hear about eternal damnation and condemnation that awaits those who reject Jesus Christ. May I tell you, people don't want to hear about judgment today. They don't. This, this is something that we are now shying away from. Don't talk like, don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about hell. Why do you have to emphasize eternal damnation? And why do you have to bring attention to that? Well, may I just simply put it this way. Just because they don't want to hear it, it doesn't change the reality of it. Uh, we say often, why did God, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, speak more about hell than heaven? I'll tell you, heaven is infinitely a greater place than hell. We know that. But the point is this. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. That's just judgment. That's right judgment. And so Jesus Christ here on earth was doing all that he could to warn people, to rescue the perishing. Uh, it is not his desire or will that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. That's the heart of God and certainly, therefore, the heart of Christ. Yet the sad part is, as we inch forward or sprint forward in the history of mankind, the fact is that the pulpits of many different denominations that once burned with passionate preaching on hell and God's impending judgment spelled out in Revelation, now barely even mention the word hell. They don't even talk about judgment. And if they do talk about hell, they have decided that hell is just about feelings. It's a feeling. Hell is just a state of mind. Judgment is just, you know, uh, uh, uncomfortability. And boy, we just dumb it down. We water it down or uh, some other kind of non-biblical description. Why in the world is that happening? Well, why in the world that even in our churches in America today that we have watered down and, and preach less and teach less about hell and the judgment of God? Well, certainly, if you want to reach uh, those who have itching ears, in other words, you want to scratch their itching ear, most people don't want to hear about hell and judgment. They don't want to hear about the sin that they commit reaping uh, what they have sown. They don't want to hear about judgment coming out. But think about it. What has, what, what has that produced? What has that produced in our nation? In any nation, in any place where judgment is no longer really taught or preached or we have conveniently, comfortably uh, left it out of our theology. If we, don't, if we don't talk about judgment and the fact that there is judgment of sin and judgment that comes from the hand of God, what plays out? Well, we see it in what even I believe Enoch condemns here. What happened in the days of Noah, which were the days of Enoch. And what we see happening even now in our nation. It's what I have entitled the reasoning of the ungodly. What is that? Well, we don't preach about hell and the reality of judgment, that God is the great judge, that God is the one that keeps each person accountable, that he's going to mete out judgment. Here's what happens. Follow with me, if you will, the logic here. If there is no future judgment by a holy God, 
Okay? First premise, if we were talking logically, first premise, if there is no future judgment, in other words, let's just forget about what Enoch said, that, that God's going to come and judge, the revelation, let's just kind of cut that out. If there is no future judgment by a holy God, then there will not be any current judgment by a loving God. You see the switch there, by the way? There's no future judgment by a holy God, then yeah, kind of desensitize, dumb it down a little bit. The reality is there's no, in their minds, there's no current judgment by a loving God. Have you heard recently, uh, decades, the overemphasis of God being love? Instead of the holiness of God, the just judge that God is, this is not, hey, the, I, I get a little going when I hear somebody say, well, you, you know, you kind of tear down this, this attribute of Christ. Listen, if you will biblically embrace every attribute and every description of God, one attribute will never take away from another attribute. It's only when you get outside the Bible in your extra biblical, in your description of an attribute of God that it will take away from another attribute. But take it for what the Bible says and what his attributes are. And my friends, the holiness of God doesn't take away from the love of God. The love of God doesn't take away from the holiness of God. That he is a just God. Yet in our mindset and as human beings, if we can deny, ignore that there is a future judgment of a holy God, that I should strive to be holy as he is holy, that I need to please him as Enoch did, then I can uh, surmise that there is no current. Okay, so today, I'm not going to reap any consequences of my choices. I I'm not going to reap what I've sown. I can act however I want today without there being repercussions. So there's no current judgment because he is just a loving God. God loves me just as I am. God loves me uh, just the way I am with all of my warts and scars. And what we're really trying to say, many are, by that is, I want to still be a sinner in the presence of a Savior. So then, follow the logic. If there's no judgment today, then there must not be a standard by which I'm judged. So if you want to follow the Bible, that's good for you. If, that wants, if you want that to be your standard for you, that's fine. But, but you know what? If there's no God that judges me today, then I can determine how I should live. I can determine how I can order my steps. If there's no standard, what does it matter? When I get to heaven, I'm just going to knock on the door, and God's going to accept me any old way that I am because there's no standard. So if I deny that there is a future judgment of a holy God, it leads me to uh, conclude there is no current judgment of a loving God. Therefore, then, there must no, not be any standard for how I am to live, how I am to conduct my life, how I am to order my steps. And then, therefore, last but not least, we are free to live, act, and carry on in any way we please. You want to know the calamity of the history of mankind? Here it is. This is what it is. You deny the Scriptures. You deny Jesus Christ's teaching on hell and the coming judgment. You deny that, as the Bible says, as is appointed after, uh, as is appointed to men once to die, but after this, the judgment. There it is. There's a judgment. So if I deny that, if I live that there is no judgment, then guess what? Today I, I can live like there's no judgment. My God's just going to put up with me how I am, and there's no standards. So if you want to follow the Bible, that's good for you, but I, I, there's just no standard. I don't have to. Then I can live any way I please. Now, do you remember 
how the days of Noah were described. Just a chapter later than we were, we're, where we were at, Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 6, here's how it was described. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that is quite interesting and quite the description. We can throw in there, too, as I like to do. I think it mirrors what Judges describes was going on in Israel that day. That says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Okay? So that would be a fair description of what this verse says, too. You, just, you do what you want. You do what the flesh wants and the lust and the, uh, the desires of the flesh. You see... Now, let's think about where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and that doesn't happen overnight. That would have transpired for some time, no doubt. Likely, it's a good possibility that it had been going on for centuries since the beginning of mankind. Uh, And if that is the case, there is every likelihood that Enoch, who lived approximately 600 plus years before Noah, his great-grandson, That as he looked around, he started noticing, wow, people aren't following the great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. As they followed God and they told us what God wanted inside, people aren't living in response to God. They're they're living ungodly. In fact, did did you see the description that he gives us here? Uh, This had already started uh, in Enoch's time. Verse 15 is crazy. Uh, You talk about a guy who uses a word too much, it seems. Notice what he says, verse 15. To execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed in all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You say, boy, Enoch didn't have a very big vocabulary. He's ungodly four times in descriptions of deeds and ungodly among them. Goodness, friend, that's not the point. His vocabulary was not limited. His observations were great. The people he lived around were ungodly. Why? Because they denied the fact that God is the great judge. They failed to acknowledge that we're going to have the answer to God, that there is a God. And so they did not live in light of judgment. They didn't live. They did what? Let's just do whatever we want. Isn't that a sad commentary about what's going on in our world today? Our nation and our country as it stands? You see, I think it's amazing that Enoch says, whoa, 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 you people better listen up. Judgment's coming. And may I tell you what the world needs to hear today? Judgment's coming. This life will not last forever. In fact, Jesus Christ will not tarry forever. He will return. The judge is coming. The judge stands at the door, as the Bible puts it. You see, when we think about this, some have speculated, even with Enoch, now this is kind of interesting, there's a couple different views on this, but some believe that Enoch named his son, uh, meaning that when he dies, judgment will come. His his son, uh, his name, you know it, Methuselah. We read it. And Methuselah died when? When the flood came. You follow all the genealogy, you count all the years, and and Methuselah was there, right? Up until that point, when Noah got on that ark. And his name seemed, Methuselah dies, and it seems like the flood happened very quickly after that. And some surmise that that name Methuselah means judgment will come when he dies. Now, Enoch gave this prophecy. It ties in well and seems pretty amazing, but here's what I find really exciting. You say, how can you find anything exciting about this? 
You know what Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 17 and verse 26? He says that as it is or was, excuse me, in the days of Noah, it will be when the Son of Man comes. I'm sorry. I don't like the direction the world's going. I don't like things that are happening. But there is a silver lining. It's bringing us closer to heaven. To the time where we as the bride are are taken away, raptured away. And Christ said it, as in the days of Noah, so it will be. And so what happens? Well, we know what plays out. Jesus Christ will return. He'll start with the rapture. The judgments of the tribulation, the seals and all those things will fall, befall the, the, uh, mankind in the earth as judgment. If you know anything about the judgment of Christ, when it begins, there are several steps to it. It plays out in several different steps. And as each one of these happens, uh, those judgments of the tribulation, it culminates in Christ, uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, glorious return for the great battle of Armageddon. And it continues from there as he establishes the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment and so forth and so on. God's going to judge mankind. We look around us today and it would appear that it is certainly the days of Noah today. There are several things we want to learn from this prophecy then that Enoch brings us, that Jude relays to us from what Enoch said. Notice number one, if you will. Uh, The first thing I think we need to emphasize is this. Our God is a patient and long-suffering God. If indeed Enoch, before antediluvian age, gave this prophecy... Uh, a very conservative, realistic uh, six, eight, ten thousand years, uh, believe in the little creation and things like that, obviously. And so, my goodness, you're talking thousands of years later, you know, this has yet to come to fruition. Does it mean the prophecy is wrong? No. It just means that our God is merciful, He's long suffering. For thousands of years now, man has continually rebelled against God. Man has continually snubbed their nose at God, have continually said, no, there's no judgment, there's no judge, there's no standard, I can live any way I want, time after time after time again. And yet through it all, our God has been merciful. He has held off that future coming judgment. You remember Peter? Peter was a little bit at times um, impulsive, you say to say the least, right? He liked to say things, respond just like that. And, and Peter was emotional. He's passionate. He, 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 would, he would be quick to say, quick to confront, quick to rebuke, and, and quick to speak up. That was Peter. And I like Peter because, boy, when he really grew and matured in the Lord, he didn't lose that passion. It just came, became Holy Spirit control. It was passion under control. It it was initiative and and just a desire under control. And so we come to 2 Peter in in chapter 3. We're going to turn there. You can go and do so. 2 Peter chapter number 3. Peter's getting worked up. He's getting frustrated. He's uh, hearing about apostates and false teachers that were mocking and discrediting the teaching that God is going to judge. That God's judgment is coming. It will someday fall upon mankind. And boy, he's listening. Listening and he's hearing these men and these teachers uh, saying, ah, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, they scoff at it. That's what he writes here. Look at chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, a little bit lengthy of a passage. But notice what it says. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, 
in both which I stir up your pure minds. I like that. Don't let there become corruption in your minds, in your thinking. Don't let it be corrupted by false things. And then he says, by way of remembrance. Now, can I tell you, our God does not keep things that we need to know secret from us. So he has revealed things. And so Peter's saying, now listen, I want to remind you of some things. Like Paul in Corinthians, I, let, let me put you in remembrance. Why? Because these are things you need to remember and maintain a pure mind about. What does he go on to say? That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. So he's saying what? What's that verse saying? Consistency. Old Testament, New Testament. It, there is a consistent teaching from the, the mind and heart of God. Notice what it says. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Okay? Can you sense it? Can you see what Peter's saying? Now listen, don't listen to them. Maintain a pure mind. Don't, when they're questioning where is God, he's going to explain why God has tarried. Look at verse number five. For this... They willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was or then was being overflowed with water perished in judgment. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of what's the next word? judgment okay and reserved for the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men there's that word again he goes on but beloved be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day don't you do you ever say on vacation i wish i had god's time frame this one day of vacation could last a thousand hey he's just saying listen god does not run by the clock Okay, and, and boy, won't that be a wonderful thing when you and I don't have to run by the clock? We don't have to wear a watch. We don't have to have some alarm telling us when to get up, when to do things, right? And when we look at the clock and realize we've ran out of time, uh, that, that doesn't even enter in into what God does. He goes on. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Let's stop a second, okay? I can't help it. I, what did he just say? If there is a future judgment... Shouldn't it affect how you live today? If there's a future judgment of a holy God, shouldn't you be concerned today about current judgment from a loving God? And shouldn't you be concerned if that holy God gave us a standard? So why aren't we holy in conversation? Why are we living according to the standard? That's what Peter's saying. Don't listen to them. Don't listen like, ah, oh, there's, oh, there's no judgment. Nothing's going to happen. You just live for today. Carpe diem, seize the day. Live it for yourself. No. Peter's answering these scoffers, these apostates, these false teachers. Verse 12, looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, 
wherein dwelleth righteousness. That stands in great contrast to the ungodly description we've seen. Verse 14, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, so you're aware of the judgment coming, you're looking for it, you understand the times, what's going to play out, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And here needs to be your attitude and your mindset. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. He said, listen, when you receive that God has tarried, that, that these things have carried on, that judgment hasn't fallen, hey, my friend, you need to be reminded and you need to understand this simple truth, that the long-suffering of God equals salvation for many. The mercy of God expressed. His waiting to send Christ to go and get your bride uh, means that uh, one more soul can get saved. Someone else can come to hear that there is a future judgment and now begin to live by the grace of God in light of the standard He's given us and live with an eye to and an attitude that there is coming the judgment. Quickly, what else do we see? Notice it back in Jude. We see this, number two, quickly. We see that the coming judgment is a personal judgment. I love how Enoch starts out his prophecy. He says this, and Enoch also, the seventh friend Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh. The Lord cometh. He said, what's the big deal about that? Contrast that with what we've already seen in the history of mankind. He doesn't say another flood's coming. He doesn't say a famine's coming. He's not saying he's going to use another nation. Nothing like that. No great act of nature. Not even an angel that we see plays out in Revelation is bringing this judgment. No, God himself is coming. The judgment's going to come from the very hand of God. You say, what does that show? Well, it shows the seriousness of the actions and it gives it finality. This is the end. The earth will be judged. Soon after, Jesus Christ will set up his millennial kingdom. There will be no mistake who is doing the judging. You remember in the days of Israel when God would do something, some of the, the followers of false idols and false gods wanted to ascribe what God did to other gods. Well, my friend, when God himself, when Jesus Christ arrives to mete out judgment, there will be no mistaking who this judgment is from. For the Lord cometh. He comes. He'll meet it out. It's a divine judgment. Number three, what else do we see? We see that this coming judgment will be a reversal. God is doing the judging, but he will not be alone. Did you catch the description? He said this, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Now, there's two things quickly I want you to see about that statement. The first is this. I believe the phrase, ten thousands of his saints, specifically ten thousands, is like an idiom to describe a bunch. Okay? Um, it's not intended to be a definitive number. So it's not like Jesus, or not like Jesus Christ is going to be in heaven. He's like, okay, you're going, you're going. Sorry, we reached ten thousand. You're not going. That's not what it's saying. In fact, it's interesting. The Greek word that is translated as ten thousands is the Greek word from which we derive our word myriad. Myriad. 
You'll hear me use it. I like that term, a myriad, a myriad of ways, I will like to say. What does that mean? Well, myriad, you probably remember, it just means a countless or extremely great number. Almost the idea of uncountable. You can't, you can't measure, you can't count it. It's countless, as it says there. So I believe when we read with ten thousands of us saying, listen, this is an endless number. This is a hard to count, a huge number, a whole bunch of saints. That brings up the second question then, who are the saints? Well, the term that is used here literally means holy ones. Now, that term is also used in other places to refer to angels. And uh, there might be some who might lean towards that. I personally would lean to, when he says saints, he means believers. We're, we're talking about those who are children of God, humans who put their faith and trust in God. And I think it goes right in, fits right in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and 14 uh, through 14, when we hear about the armies of heaven that come with God, come with Jesus Christ back to earth and uh, wage that battle, bring that judgment, and describing those uh, saints, those believers coming with them. Now, why is that important? Because, my friend, that is a great role reversal. For much of the history of mankind, it has been the children of God that have been oppressed, persecuted. They have been the ones trampled underfoot. They have been the ones that have been uh, mutilated and and attacked and torn down and and, uh, belittled and uh, been the oppressed, if we might describe it as such, and by those who have rebelled against God. They have suffered at the hands. May I put it this way? This first part and what will seem like, now, this is hard to believe, okay? Um, uh, those of us who are a little bit older, it seems like, boy, this lifetime is a long time. Do you realize that the entire history of mankind, once you and I are in eternity with our God, the entire history of mankind on earth will seem like that? From the days of Adam to the days of whatever person is here before uh, this all befalls, it will seem like that. Looking back in that rearview mirror. And in that short time, God in his mercy and his long suffering, you know what has transpired? The wicked have had their day in the sun. Or as the Bible has put it, they have enjoyed their sin for a season. But judgment's coming. And there will be a great role reversal. Now, my friends, that makes you and I be able to keep on keeping on. That helps us be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because what we are experiencing here, and it seems to be getting greater here in our own beloved nation, and even around the world, the persecution, the things that are befalling the, the children of God are but for a moment. And the day is coming when we will return with our Savior as He meets out judgment. He, our God, the great judge, will right all wrong. Man, I'm so thankful that he describes himself as our avenger. <laughs> Vengeance is his. He was the one that will right all wrongs. I don't have to. You don't have to. We don't have to, uh, uh, to try to change the world in that sense to, to make it more palatable and more such for Christians. It's not a bad thing to do that. But nonetheless, uh, it will all be righted in the end when the great judge comes. Notice the next one real quick, number four here. The coming judgment will uh, be for the purpose of executing judgment. Now you read that and say, that's kind of redundant, Pastor Henry. Well, not really. It's not just a play on words. What do we read? And he says, the beginning of verse 15, to execute judgment upon all. 
what we are saying by this and what he is making the point that is being made is that there is and will always be accountability. What he's conveying is this. Yeah, there's a future judgment coming. You're going to be held accountable. You're going to be held accountable. Everyone, and and I love the statement, who's going to do? No one's going to slip through the cracks. He says, execute judgment upon all. Upon all. All will face judgment, and specifically all the ungodly, because he goes on to say that. Real quick, we'll throw on there number five. Notice what, what else, and I told you we're going through this quick. The coming judgment will expose all as guilty and without excuse. He goes on to say to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them, and he goes on to convince them of what? So I love that usage of the word convince. In other words, you have no excuse to offer. It's going to be so clear, so obvious that he exposes, and the the term here, uh, convince, literally means to expose and to prove guilty, to reveal as being guilty. All will be convinced of their error and culpability, their guiltiness, and it also then carries on this word convince, and what is described for us in verse 15 is also the idea not only being convinced, but being convicted. It's the idea, you're going to be so convinced that you are ungodly. Oh yeah, I did it, I'm wrong, I am guilty. And then you're going to be convicted. And from that conviction, as they're exposed as guilty, they're tried by the great judge, and in, uh, instantaneously they're uh, convicted, the verdict is handed down, and the right punishment will fall. Their sins will be dealt with. The judgment's going to happen. And remember, this is all in context of Jude. Remember in Jude 4, verse 4? You remember what he says? Those who have crept in unawares have been before ordained to what? This condemnation. He quotes Enoch to say, listen, that condemnation, what they're going to face, this is it. Enoch described it. They're going to come face to face with all of uh, what is being described by Enoch. This judgment that's going to fall upon them. Last but not least, six, I know we're going through it quickly, but we need to bring it to a close. The coming judgment will be what is deserved. He goes on, he describes it as this, to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we see the deservedness. Uh, they cannot deny the actions and the things that make them deserving of the judgment that fall. Jude adds to those deeds. Okay, not only do they commit ungodly deeds, but did you catch what he adds? Their speech. He says they're hard speeches. The things they have spoken against God and his truth. And, and for those apostates and those who stood behind a pulpit, for their false teaching, their messages, their sermons, their teachings. For all apostates, whether in the pulpit or the pew, their false counsel, their other utterances that cross their lips, even while they profess to follow God, and they profess to possess a degree of spirituality. You see, what Jude is quoting Enoch and saying is this, they, their works and their words have betrayed and condemned them. Now, he gives us just a little expansion. I know we filled up the blanks, but we're not quite done. He expounds upon, did you catch that term? They're hard speeches. Harsh, they're unkind, they're contrary speeches. He goes on in the next verse, verse 16, to describe it. Give us a little bit more description. Look at verse 16 and we're done. These, okay, here's what they did in their deeds and their words. These are murmurers 
complainers, walking after their own lusts. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. So let me just describe what we just read. They are disloyal. They are disloyal even in their words. They're grumblers. They're complainers. Uh, They are malcontents. They're not content with doing it God's way. They're now, as we've already seen in the book here of Jude, uh, they're not happy with God's ways. They find fault and they blame God and even his leaders, as we saw in the case of Korah, as Jude uh, brought as an illustration. They live according to their own ways and desires. They're very self-centered. And yet, yet, they speak pridefully. They speak arrogantly. They use, as he describes here, great swelling words. They, in other words, you know what? They have the right jargon. They have the right vocabulary. They express a spiritual tone and attractiveness. And, and uh, they deceive many by uh, the eloquence of their words and their speech. They impress audiences and other believers alike. And they're good at telling people what they want to hear. What does he say why they do that? So they can take advantage. That's what it says. They take advantage of them. Uh, they have, as he described it here, persons in admiration of them so that they can take advantage. Their own gain. They want to profit from it. They want to prosper through it. They cleverly manipulate others for their own gain. Now listen to me. You and I, and I've said it before, I see them on television, you see them on television. We hear about them. With, oh, apostates, false teachers, and like, ah, oh, hey, my friend, it's all good. God's going to judge them. God will judge them. They're not slipping through the cracks. God's going to bring judgment. And it also behooves you and I to make sure we're not falling into an area of apostasy in our own lives. To ensure that you and I haven't taken our own opinion, our own thoughts, and superimposed them over God's word and decided this is how I'm going to live. This is what, and be arrogant maybe in our own thoughts and our own uh, intelligence or whatever the case is. Hey, be careful. This is not just a uh, warning, hey, the apostate's facing judgment. It's also a good warning for you and I not to slip into apostasy in any area in our lives. Stick to the standard. Stick to the truth. So if I were to put it, and um, as we understand judgment is coming for ungodly rebels and apostates, mark it down, it's coming. What would I put as our takeaways today? Number one, very some simple takeaways for tonight is this. Contending for the faith means to warn of the coming judgment, to do so diligently. Every day that you and I wake up in the beautiful state of Michigan is another day for you and I to warn Michiganders that judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Every day that Christ tarries is one more day that could change somebody's eternity. Warn them. Well, I don't know how people want to hear about hell. I really don't care if they want to hear about hell. They need to hear about hell. They need to hear about the judgment of Christ coming. Then number two, we are comforted and reminded that those who oppose God those who feign spirituality but really are contrary to the work and ways of God will be held accountable. God will right every wrong. And that ought to bring us some comfort. That ought to encourage us. We might see an apostate. We might see someone who's a false teacher seem to prosper. Hey, God's going to take care of it. 
So boil it down to three truths for you and I. Number one, don't be an apostate. Make sure there's no area of apostasy in your own life. Number two, warn the apostate. And as Enoch likes to put it, the ungodly. (laughs) See, ungodly, warn them. Judgment's coming. Be sure your sin will find you out. Judgment will come. You're not going to hide anything. You're not going to get away with anything. And then last but not least, avoid the apostate so you aren't deceived. What we've seen described even in that last verse and other parts of Jude is, man, apostates can be slick. They, they can be deceptive. Don't be deceived. Stick to the standard and the truth of God's word. Follow him. Well,